Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, episode 72. I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and while you might not think it based on previous things you've heard on this podcast, I'm actually all for the government making a blatant power grab. As long as the power they're grabbing is not the EU withdrawal bill, but instead some loose electrical wiring and they don't have rubber gloves. Yes, the Commons have voted to keep progressing the EU Withdrawal Bill through Parliament. You know, the EU Withdrawal Bill, formerly the Repeal Bill, formerly the Great Repeal Bill, because nothing assures you about the quality and benefits of something like the politicians who introduced it not even being confident enough with its name. The EU Withdrawal Bill will now have to go through committee stage and then the House of Lords, but if passed as it is, it will allow the government to convert EU laws into UK laws, but with many of them not even going through Parliament's approval if the government decide it's not worth it. This means they can essentially do whatever they like. Hence its nickname being the Henry VIII Bill, as whoever's in charge is likely to send more democratic rules to death than any other leader. During the debate, mutated Toby Jugser Edward Lee told the Commons, Henry VIII was a bastard, but he was my kind of bastard, which among many other things should really make his wife call the police now. The EU withdrawal bill actually has very little to do with Brexit, and far more to do with giving the government a ludicrous amount of wide power, which is also why it's referred to as the Henry VIII bill, as wide power was his nickname in later years. The government warned that MPs should back the bill or face chaos, but to be fair, facing chaos seems a lot less scary than falling arse over tit at chaos like the government currently are at EU negotiations. But hey, MPs were still afraid of that chaos and therefore voted to keep the bill going. So who knows, everything will probably be pretty much the same as before, only now MPs don't even have to bother pretending to want democracy or turn up in the first place. This, of course, comes days just after the government's plans to deter immigrants from the UK were leaked. And oddly, they didn't include any of some of the truly effective methods of deterring immigrants, such as constantly broadcasting pictures worldwide of how shitty our summertime is, footage of our Prime Minister and product of a dystopian jelly mould, Theresa May, talking about anything ever, or threatening, you know, to have Eamon Holmes greet people as they arrive at the airport. 
Instead, there were some very hardline worrying policies, such as allowing low-skilled EU workers residency for only two years. Presumably because that's still long enough for the general feeling of misery and discontent to rub off and then they can return home to tell everyone else how shit things are in the UK and how xenophobic and inhospitable everyone is, let alone how crappy and useless the pound is, deterring any of their friends from wanting to come over either. Tough new controls would also stop many EU workers from coming over with their families, which could, in some circumstances, actually encourage more people to come here if it means they might finally get a fucking sleep in or not have to help their parents with how to send a text anymore. In other Brexit-related news, depressed souffle David Davis told the Commons that nobody pretended Brexit would be simple or easy, just weeks after disgrace, disgrace, Liam Fox the disgrace, said it would indeed be easy. As did former UKIP leader Paul Nuttall and Tory MP John Redwood, and indeed David Davis himself, who all said it would be easy. Though, to be fair, David Davis did say nobody pretended Brexit would be easy, and I struggle to think of a more apt description for any of the names I've just mentioned. In other UK news, the government has conceded that actual champion of parliamentary sovereignty Gina Miller was right and that Parliament will need to approve the release of £1 billion of funding to the DUP. I guess depending on if the DUP are allowed to vote in that decision, it'll really prove the worth of the £1 billion in the first place. Obviously, if they can take part in the vote, it'll make the whole thing feel like insisting on having a fist fight to see if the martial arts experts on your side should be hired in the first place. Not that the DUP are like martial arts experts, of course, as that would require being fans of inner peace. On Friday, Theresa May made a guest appearance on Test Match Special, something she clearly can't be an expert or very good at as she's regularly stumped. On the show, she told presenter Jonathan Agnew that she wasn't in the least bit robotic, though having watched Westworld, that is pretty much what host robots would be programmed to say to avoid gaining self-awareness. Considering May then went on to commend former England cricket captain Geoffrey Boycott for just sticking in there and getting on with the job, that kind of proves my point entirely. Meanwhile, Labour leader and former puppeteer of Sooty, Jeremy Corbyn, attended the lush creative showcase event for the Ethical Bath Products Company, and he made his own bath bomb, which surprisingly didn't prompt any right-wing papers to accuse him of being associated with hot tub terrorism. Corbyn said he wished he had a bathtub to use it in, making many wonder if he just enjoys ideas that seem appealing on the surface, but if actually used, would dissolve under any pressure at all. In the rest of the world, if weather was any more uncertain and all over the place, it'd probably be hired as part of the UK Brexit negotiating team. Hurricane Irma has wrecked havoc across the Caribbean and now Miami, though it has been scaled down from a Category 4 to a Category 1, because like everyone else in the US, it's only going to Florida to retire. US President and love child of a pile-up and a cheese puff, Donald Trump, has approved a declaration for a major disaster. That's for the hurricane, not his presidency, unfortunately. And he referred to Irma as a big monster. Considering recent events have mostly affected poorer areas, we can expect him to hire this big monster as his new chief strategist soon. People in Florida have been warned not to fire their guns at the hurricane because, you know, we all know it'll have no effect when the only thing that stops a bad hurricane is a good hurricane. Meanwhile, Trump has ordered an end to the DACA or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals programme, meaning 800,000 young adults could be deported from the US. And while that is a horrific and very upsetting decision, on the plus side, in the current climate, it could mean that they get their evacuation paid for while the rest of America is killed by a swirling big monster maelstrom of stupid Floridian bullets. Hello you, and you as well. Oh, go on, and you too. But no, not you. Stop it. 
Thank you, as always, for lending me your lug holes for this podcast. Um, this week's show should hopefully be a slightly shorter one than last week, as I realised it was quite a lengthy episode, but I just couldn't leave any of the interview out with Anne Pettifort, as I thought it was all worth listening to. Um, speaking of which, thank you to everyone who tweeted and emailed to say how much they enjoyed that chat. Uh, that was very nice to hear. Um, and also, as this is a democratic podcast, also a thank you to Andrew, who emailed with a lengthy and very in-depth critique of why he said Anne was 80% right, uh, but 20% wrong, which kind of ruined it um anyway there's a lot to his uh response and i'm not going to read it all out now where it will make this podcast as long as last week's but what i will do is i will copy andrew's email and paste it into the facebook and twitter i've asked him already so that's fine um and then you can have a read for yourself as there are so many varying views on economics it is always very much worth reading up on as much of it as possible um andrew recommends reading economists ricardo rebonato and kate raworth so i'll pop some links to their stuff online as well So thank you to Andrew for that, and apologies for not reading his full reply. Um, If you do have any criticisms or thoughts on anything I or the guests say, I am always keen to hear other views, unless, of course, you know, they're properly shitty racist ones, or, you know, the idea that red trousers are somehow acceptable. Um, Other than those, you can, of course, email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com, the Parpol Bro Twitter account, or the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group. Uh, Speaking of which, I am working on a Parpol Bro specific website, which will then have show notes for everything on it uh, for all the episodes and um, thank you again to Cat Day for doing the linear notes for last week's show and then questioning whether they're linear or liner notes as it's recording which has liner anyway I really don't know um, but thank you to Cat. and if I do get the website up I'll attach feedback and things to every single episode as well so it'll be a bit of a useful resource um, but you know how website making works it'll probably be up and running by some point in 2019 Also, um, I have now put my Ed Fringe show up on the Patreon for subscribers only, and then I did it again after realising I posted it in a stupid way that meant you could only listen to it on the site instead of downloading it. Bah! Anyway, if you want to contribute financially towards this show um, and join up at patreon.com forward slash parpolebro, you will get the reward of an hour of my stand-up. Yes, another hour of me. Any more and you'll start to sympathise with what my wife has to deal with on a daily basis. Um, Or if you want to just give a one-off donation, you can also buy me a coffee or the monetary equivalent of a coffee from a reasonable establishment and not the one near me that is a total fucking rip-off. I mean, really? £7 for two coffees? You're a dickhead. Anyway, uh, you can head to ko-fi.com, that's ko-fi.com forward slash parpolebro and give me £3 there. But more than any of those things, um, if you enjoy tuning into this weekly show, please, 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 do review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, or whatever you use for pod stuff. And please, please, please do spread the word, um, perhaps tweet or Facebook about the show, or harass your favourite paper or zine to write about it. It would be real nice to boost the listenership of this show even more. I mean, I know professionally I'm meant to tell you that you're the only listener, uh, so you feel special. But I'm also a very honest guy, so let's face the facts and deal with it. You three are the only listeners, all right? Uh, a couple of other bits this week. Um, firstly, thanks tons to uh, at Beezus Teezus um, for doing some resmog picks for a vid for the partly political jingle I did about resmog a few eps back. Um, I've popped that vid on the Twitter, the Facebook, and YouTube, and other places if you wish to share it. Um, also, if you remember before the summer on episode 70, I interviewed Jason Reed at UK Leap, uh, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Well, on September the 19th, if you do remember that, I am on a panel for his podcast, Stop and Search, which will be recording 
at the Crowd Shed near Tottenham Court Road. It's going to be me, journalist Felicity Morse, and writer for Jonathan Pye, Andrew Doyle. Uh, tickets are completely free, and you can grab them if you search on Eventbrite for Breaking the News or the Stop and Search podcast. And lastly, uh, if you didn't read Tat Nahisi Coates' article last week on theatlantic.com, then stop this podcast and go and do that first. Um, it's called Donald Trump is the First White President, and it is a beautifully written, very powerful account of endemically racist America. Uh, Tat Nahisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me, um, is an incredibly important read as well. I raced through it in an afternoon. Um, it's Wow, it's a very emotional book about growing up uh, as a black man in America. I would highly recommend it. Um, and his new one, We Were Eight Years in Power, is out now in October as well. Um, I'm plugging those just because they're brilliant. You're very welcome. Go check them out. Um, right, on this week's show, there is a bit of a partly global broadcast on a few worldly issues uh, and also an interview with Director of Latin American Studies at Essex University, Lisa Blackmore, on what on earth is happening in Venezuela. Plus, of course, the opposite of being worldy, more Brexing fuck it. Sorry, fucking Brexit. But first, have this. Labour MP David Lammy released his independent review for the Ministry of Justice this week, finding that there is racial bias in the criminal justice system. Do you guys need a minute to get over your shock and unbelievable surprise? I mean, who knew? Racial bias in the criminal justice system? I mean, what next? Finding discrimination against ethnic minority groups in the fashion, entertainment, financial, public, computing and probably even zoological sectors? I mean, what are the chances? The review that Lammy's done is a very, very good thing, if long overdue, and its findings have shown that despite black people only being 3% of the UK population, they account for 12% of people in prison in the UK, which is more disproportionate than the US, a country that basically uses its prison system to make up for slavery being criminalised. Oh, and Orange is the New Black, obviously. Similarly, Muslims account for 5% of the UK population, but 15% of prisoners, which has risen by 50% in a very, very short time. BAME male prisoners are far more likely to be kept in high security prisons than white offenders. And of course, a large amount of employers won't hire people with a criminal record, so it has a knock-on effect. Although, did you know you can actually stand as an MP if you have a criminal record, even though you can't run for a job as a councillor if you have one, because you know, some areas have to have standards. David Lammy points blame at the criminal justice system for ignoring elements such as difficult backgrounds or if the offenders come from deprived areas, whereas in comparison for white offenders they do a full-on X-Factor-style story where they ask if you offended for your dead grandma as it's what she would have wanted and then they play some moving string music. There is also a huge lack of BAME judges and prison officers and David Lammy says that this needs to change by 2025 for more and better equal representation. We'll have to see if the government pays attention to this as Parliament only has 51 BAME MPs, which is only about 7.8% of all of them, while BAME people are 14% of the UK population. So representation is going to need to change there by 2025 too for any of this to really change. Apparently, using Facebook causes depression, on account of us constantly seeing how everyone else is having a much better life than we are. Well, it's been discovered that more than $150,000 worth of Facebook ads leading up to the US presidential election last year were placed by inauthentic accounts likely from Russia. Yes, that means there are some Russian hackers who are having several better lives than you. How does that make you feel now? Yeah, even worse. Facebook said the messages didn't mention election candidates themselves, but instead sent amplifying and divisive social and political messages across the ideological spectrum. I mean, no wonder it blended right into the rest of Facebook's content without anyone else noticing. This is the first time Facebook have acknowledged that many of the accounts they have to shut down come from Russian sources, and this adds to a wider picture of Russian interference in the US election, including the NSA stating this month that evidence suggests they hacked election systems in 39 states. 
though none of the evidence shows they influenced the outcome. It's unclear whether the Facebook post had any large effect on the outcome either, but Facebook said they are doing more to delete false accounts and tackle fake news on their site. I'm not sure what that means, but knowing them, they'll probably just add the hand-on-chin-concerned-face emoji that you can use to comment underneath. The UK government have said they'll lift the 1% public sector pay cap, but only for police and prison officers, because, you know, they don't have private versions of those things yet to keep them safe, so best to keep them on side till they do. The increases in pay should be announced this week, with the Treasury suggesting that they will give guidance on lifting the cap for other public sector workers next year if they haven't already died of starvation. The problem is that the police force are already warning that they have budgeted for an only 1% pay increase, and any increase over that will mean that they're going to have to lose jobs. Yeah, it's kind of like the Sophie's Choice of Employment. More pay, but less people keep their jobs, or everyone keeps their jobs, but less pay. The IFS have said that lifting the cap will cost 6 to $7 billion more than previously. Yeah, it's almost as if paying people costs money. How strange. Meanwhile, in Scotland, SNP leader and First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has said that they will lift the pay cap for all public sector workers, but it will be in line with inflation and budgets, so on the whole better than before, but probably not quite enough. It all feels a bit like giving a child back a toy you confiscated off them years ago, only now it doesn't quite work right, one of its eyes is missing, and instead of it telling you it loves you, it makes a noise that sounds like someone screaming. Are you concerned that you just don't know how to do your good British duty and back Brexit? More importantly, if you back Brexit and it's going in reverse, is it safe and will you get run over as a result? Well, never fear, because right now we need you to forget all logic, reason and concern for your own well-being so you, yes you, can help the government cut off its nose to bleed to death violently and then look awful in an open casket. So, just for you, here are some tips to get you fully behind Brexit in case you're struggling. Step 1. Do not use any words that aren't strictly British, which is around 80,000 words you should never ever say again. No more rendezvous, deja vus, no phobias, ologies or most medical terminology. Instead, to represent Britain to its fullest, we must use the remaining words we have to be as British as possible and just point and shout more loudly at things we want, such as our sovereignty. What's that? Sovereignty's from Latin and French. Oh, so we can't say that anymore either. Fuck. What's that? Fuck is from Germanic language. Oh, well, you can't say that either. Oh, well. Well is Germanic too. Ah, oh, bugger. And bugger's Dutch. Hopefully that will help you eschew the possibilities of being a traitor and back Brexit like a true Brit. What do you mean I can't say that either? Brit is from Latin. Bollocks. If you were to see the list of places in the world I know nothing about, it would be mostly blank because, well, I don't know anything about them. Case in point is Venezuela. I don't even know any stereotypes about Venezuela to make terrible jokes about in the introduction for this bit. I mean, I once had Arapas and that was quite nice, but right now it is very important to know about Venezuela as the country is in serious turmoil. A crash in oil prices has left many Venezuelans in extreme poverty and famine. The country is divided between supporters of President Maduro's regime and those who are against, and the UN has just announced that Nicolas Maduro has committed crimes against humanity and instructed that a criminal investigation take place. There have been many riots, protest-related deaths and the incarceration of many trying to speak out about it, and it's in a political, social and economic crisis. That is quite the change for Venezuela, a country voted happiest in the world in 2008. Though, as every cloud does have a silver lining, it does give the UK some hope, as we're currently 19th happiest, so at least we can't fall too far. 
But Venezuela is a country we only hear about in the UK when something isn't going right. Or, you know, when Ken Livingston says something tactless, which, to be fair, is becoming more and more regular. So this week, I thought I should speak to someone who can explain exactly why Venezuela is in this situation and what needs to and may happen next. So I spoke to Dr Lisa Blackmore, who is the Director of Latin American Studies at the University of Essex. Lisa researches the aesthetics and politics of modernity in Latin America. Her first book, published this year, is called Spectacular Modernity, Dictatorship, Space and Visuality in Venezuela, 1948-1958, and she is currently co-editing two volumes on culture and politics in Venezuela as well. So I thought she'd be a pretty good person to help you and me become a little bit more knowledgeable on the subject. And while I knew nothing about Venezuela, it turns out I did know the right person to ask me to help change that. So I hope this is as useful to you as it was to me. Here's Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for talking with me today. Um, It's quite a big question to start off with, but I feel that we are not really being told a lot about Venezuela in the UK at the moment on the news or otherwise. Um, So I just wondered if for myself and the listeners, you could give a kind of overview of what the current situation in Venezuela is and why there is such turmoil at the moment. Hi, Tina. So thanks very much for inviting me to to share some ideas about Venezuela with you and with your listeners. Um, absolutely. it's Venezuela is one of these countries that it seems to pop up onto the news radar uh, in the UK um, and globally as well, kind of at very particular moments when everything seems to get to a moment of absolute crisis. And then it, it magically disappears again. So we never quite get the whole story. Um, it's uh, a long Um, story to tell, but I'll try and just give you some nuggets of what's happening at the moment. Um, So Venezuela is really kind of living through a process of, um, you know, at least 15 years of political turmoil. Um, But the kind of most recent uh, problems that the country is having have followed a a bout of massive street protests that ran from April this year till more or less the beginning of August and have only very recently died down. So what we've been seeing are um, people mobilised on the streets and protesting the government of Nicolás Maduro, who um, came to power in 2013 after the death of Socialist President Hugo Chávez. Now, in these protests, people were complaining of scarcity of food, like vital foodstuffs. So we're looking at sort of the daily bread foodstuffs that people are not getting hold of and that have been having to queue for uh, since more or less 2015. Um, and also the, the the kind of really critical scarcity of, of medicine, really basic medicines that, um, that people rely on in everyday life. Uh, in these violent protests, um, we saw the security forces really crack down um, in, in quite violent ways to, to disperse protesters. This led to the deaths of more than 100 people. Um, and this is both anti-government protests and, and pro-government individuals that were caught up in violence um, and were, in some cases, um, set alight um, or, or killed. Um, and... Right now, this has also led to a sort of a swelling of the, the population of political prisoners in Venezuela. There are currently uh, well over 1,000 people in jail for political reasons. 
Um, and just just this week, the, the UN Human Rights Commission in Geneva has been alerted to the fact that extrajudicial killings were carried out by security forces. So there's been like a really nasty bout of violence, and this has only just sort of um, died down recently. And, and part of this, obviously, is also in a kind of broader framework, part of the uh, global downturn in oil prices, so Venezuela is a, a monoproduct um, country, an economy absolutely depends on um, oil uh, revenues coming in. Um, and this has really kind of contributed to the problems with the scarcity in, in food and medicine. Everything is imported. So the, the sort of social impacts of, of all of this that have been playing out and that have sort of led to this low, this recent bout of protests has been, you know, what people on the opposition are calling a humanitarian crisis, but which the government of Maduro refuses to acknowledge as such, which is basically widespread hunger, malnutrition, that we've seen sort of quite devastating statistics of um, the average Venezuelan losing, you know, a number of kilos um, in body weight just through not being able to, to eat enough. And so that's, that's really how things stand at the moment. That's, it's very, very bleak, isn't it? I mean, it's one of the things that I, I have sort of gathered from this is it, people in Venezuela are going through a really quite horrific time at the moment. Um, and again, that's one of the reasons why I find it quite shocking that we're not hearing more about it uh, in the rest of the world. Um, is this, you, you mentioned uh, oil as a, a problem then. I mean, what's what was the kind of catalyst to... to making things go go this far was it was it chavez's death is it mahuro's rule and what's um you know what's changed in the last couple of years that have le that's led to this yeah so we saw through chavez's um um administration so from 98 through to 2013 and successive periods of of his presidential terms that there um was a relatively healthy economy. The oil prices circa 2006-07 were, you know, over $100 a barrel. Um, and this really enabled Chavez to build a social, a set of social programs that favoured the urban poor, that promoted education, that promoted access to health care. And all of this built a very top-heavy state, right? So a state that had, you know, I think, and continues to have sort of 30-odd ministries. Um, so public spending um, is, is really hard to sustain when you have a period of collapse in oil prices as happened this year in, in June. You know, over the last couple of years, oil prices have been steadily sort of um, declining uh, and has reached the sort of sub-$40 uh, a barrel um, level in June this year. So this is making the, you know, sustaining the kind of state apparatus that, that Chavez put in place really difficult. Um, and so people have been increasingly feeling the impacts of this on their lives. If we look at food distribution and then production, Venezuela is not a country that has historically produced um, its own foodstuff. So, you know, the reliance on import uh, and using dollars to fund that mean that, um scarcity of food products has been ever more problematic. And so there's been, uh, let's say, a kind of gradual wearing away of people's capacity to deal with their daily lives and their patience with the regime. And this has even spreaded into groups that have historically 
been staunch supporters of, of Hugo Chavez's rule and then were expected to retain support for Maduro as his, his, let's say, the kind of successor of Chavez's legacy and as the person who was earmarked to carry on this same um, program. So, you know, the, the government has had to create new measures to try to retain supporters. And one of these, with regards to food, has, has been the... Um, distribution of boxes of uh, or bags of, of kind of basic foodstuffs that are distributed between people who were members of the um, the the socialist party so the pro Chavez pro Maduro party um, but this doesn't mean um, that you know everybody is able to get access to to all of the basic things that they need um, so the kind of traditional polarization of Venezuela, which was broadly into sort of two groups of pro and anti uh, and, and kind of relatively um, sort of evenly distributed, let's say, sort of 50-50 split, um, which we saw in 2013 with the elections after Charles's death. So Maduro was brought to his um, tenure with only sort of 1.5 percent of a margin. So you can already see on the basis of these statistics that the country is pretty divided, but the recent economic pressures has kind of cut into Maduro's approval ratings quite significantly and also led to breakouts in, in protests in, in areas, sort of working class areas that were more traditionally um, allied with the, aligned with the government of, of Chavez. And, and is it because, I mean, Maduro's rule, I mean, you're saying that there's a lot more political prisoners before, and I've read about, um, you know, journalists being imprisoned uh, and anyone that's basically speaking out about it being being imprisoned. And why is there still, uh, why are there still government supporters? Because this doesn't sound like a situation where there'd be, I know you said that Maduro's approval rating is lower than it has been, but... Also, I'm reading that the country is divided between those that are still supporting the government and those that aren't. So why would anyone want to continue supporting them? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question, and it's really key to sort of understand um, how these groups sort of uh, have been formed as well. And, and that's one of the things I think that in the media we haven't been able to get, because it's a very long story, it's a more historical story, and it has very much to do with narrative of what the nation is and, and who makes up society. So one of the great successes of, of Chavez was to sort of tap into and bring to the surface a sort of imaginary of socio-economic divisions and injustices in Venezuela that are absolutely sort of long-standing. Um, so the country, you know, in the, throughout the 20th century, during the discovery of kind of vast oil wealth, there's been also a kind of failure to distribute that oil wealth um, throughout society. So you have already a kind of very uneven society with a huge constituent of urban, urban, urban poor. Um, so when Chavez first came to power, there was a, a move to um, create a new method of distributing oil wealth that was re you know, it was all about reconciliation. It was all about kind of um, national rebirth and, and bringing people together and being able to kind of, uh, you know, make good these social debts. Um, but very soon we see the kind of fragmentation and uh, within this project of basically the, the you know business elites also turning on this project and um, mounting a coup against Chavez in 2002. And so this is a point of, of absolute fracture within this project where suddenly you get this divide within in society where 
the government um, mobilizes um, its traditional supporters of the urban poor, people who have been traditionally left out of um, the kind of circulation of, of, of oil wealth and education and all of the kind of benefits of, of upward mobilization that, let's say, the middle classes and the upper middle classes of Venezuela had been enjoying throughout uh, the 20th century, uh, and, and pits these groups, uh, all aligned with Chavismo, with the movement that Chavez was um, sort of leading, against the elites. You know? So the elites, the oligarchs, are lumped into this other group. So you get this narrative and this very potent cultural imaginary of us versus them. And that narrative has really gained traction um, through the sorts of uh, populist manifestations that uh, the Chavez government organized throughout the 2000s. So we're talking about mass rallies. We're looking at the kind of traditional images of people taking to the streets, all wearing red T-shirts, all supporting the government. Um, and that sort of played out really successfully, let's say, in in the political landscape, and also with the kind of fragmentation of the opposition, it provided Chavismo with a really solid way to kind of always be, uh, always have an enemy on the other side that is elitist, that is trying to get rid of the social programs, etc. And so these kind of deep divisions have been really cleft into society. And this is something that just gained such traction as a narrative, and it endures today. I mean, if we look at the way that Nicolas Maduro, even with all his unpopularity, confronts today today's protests. You know, he he taps into this um, well-honed narrative of it's the elites trying to get rid of me. It's Washington, this anti-imperialist narrative as well, trying to get rid of me. And I am the protector of the people. I am the inheritor of Chavez's legacy. I am here to protect you. And so this is a very powerful narrative. If you are somebody who is traditionally, socially, and economically disenfranchised and, and politically disenfranchised as well. And so, I mean, with whom are you going to ally your forces as a kind of person who is looking at the state of the political landscape? You've li lived for more than 15 years of social programs, of um, a narrative of kind of uh, state handouts as well and support. And you say to yourself, what is the opposition offering me? Probably not very much. It's, um, it's really interesting because I, I've heard quite a lot of, uh, I, I think, sort of right-wing commentators have, have constantly referred to this as a, a proof of a failure of socialism. But from what you're explaining, it seems very much like populism, or quite similar to almost what we've seen in America and what we've seen in Brexit with the UK, and the similar thing of the people feeling like they've been downtrodden and that the way to um, get power back is to support this leader who promises them, them something else and something better. Um, so is this... Is that a sort of accurate description? I mean, or is this a uh, proof of the failure of socialism? And I assume, obviously, socialism and, and populism aren't exclusive of each other. Um, but, uh, you know, would that be a more accurate description? I don't think we could call this a failure of socialism per se. I think one of the problems with Venezuela is it's being wielded as a kind of proxy argument to prove globally the, the failure of socialism. And I think it's so important to look at the sort of structural and historical conditions within which socialism or a brand of socialism was in, implanted into Venezuela. I think one of the problems with Venezuela is that um, uh, social welfare programs were really kind of um, well instituted for at least a while, but the basic economic model remains the same. The basic economic model in Venezuela is the petro-state. So it's just a, 
the same um, idea of the state kind of capturing the revenues from the sale of oil and, you know, being just redistributing them in a different way, you know, and, and this hasn't necessarily um, enacted a sort of deep um, application of a, of a, a socialist model. Um, and, and if anything, some of the um, more kind of stridently socialist forms of production or, or land management have been, I think, quite um, unsuccessfully uh, implanted in Venezuela. So it's very much a kind of top-heavy state. It's very centralized power. Um, and even grassroots, grassroots um, groups that you would expect to have a kind of a much bigger chunk of power within Venezuela have also, um, you know, in this anthropologists and political scientists have been documenting through their research, have had to incorporate into a state bureaucracy. Um, and so all this makes it uh, not a very agile mode of, of socialist government, let's say, but one that's very much more marked, as you rightly mentioned, by populism and by authoritarianism. And so the kind of um, the stacking of, of the courts of justice with uh, people who would be um, on, on the side of Chavismo is one of the examples that we can look at of how, um, you know, the sort of authoritarian brand of populism has played out in Venezuela. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Back to Lisa in a minute, but first... Hardly Global Broadcast. There is a lot of stuff happening all over the globe right now, and I thought it would be useful this week to mention a couple so you, the listener, can impress others with your incredible knowledge and your local pub, grave-digging society meeting, or perhaps tree-insulting collectives. And they'll all be like, whoa, and we thought the UK was the worst, but it turns out others are worsers, and then you can say with a smug grin, hey, but we're still pretty bad at being worsest, and then everyone will laugh and go back to calling a silver birch a bastard. So, anyway, first up. There is some properly horrible shit going on in Myanmar, formerly Burma, at the moment, if you haven't already heard. 
Found just between Bangladesh and Thailand, Myanmar has previously been known for a big fuck-off Buddhist temple and for being a very diverse country with people of over 100 ethnicities residing there. But since last month, the latter bit of their reputation has rapidly changed, with more than 310,000 Rohingya Muslims having fled to Bangladesh as they're being targeted by the military, in what the UN is calling a textbook example of ethnic cleansing. And I thought the textbooks at my school were bleak. This all kicked off on August 25th when Rohingya militants attacked police posts in northern Rakhine, killing 12 security officials. But the Myanmar military have responded to that by burning Rohingya villages and attacking any Rohingya Muslims they come across. Feels a bit much for retaliation. It's like if a kid smashed your window with a football on purpose and you responded by murdering anyone who's ever played football. The government say Rohingya militants are causing the fires, but there is much evidence to suggest it is actually the government who are essentially ethnic cleansing the area. The Rohingya are stateless people, which doesn't mean they can be solid liquid and gas all at once, which is my superpower after several drinks and a curry. But if you remember my chat with Tendai Bloom in episode 57, she explained that stateless people aren't necessarily people without a home, but people who aren't recognised as having a nationality by the countries they live in, which can make life extremely tough. Around 1.5 million Rohingya have no home at all, while around 1.3 million were living in Myanmar, but Myanmar keep denying them the possibility of acquiring a nationality, which means they're restricted from having state education, freedom of movement or civil service jobs, and have regularly been persecuted by the government in a way that the UN has suspected for a while means that they just want to eject them from the country. The leader of Myanmar, Aung San Suu Kyi, has not spoken out against the situation at all, and many are calling for the Nobel Institute to withdraw her peace prize that she won in 1991 for non-violent struggle for human rights. Because, I mean, really, this, what's happening now, is the exact opposite of that and peace. If anything, they should remove her peace prize and then award her with a Nobel Prize for being a shit-shit human just to send home the point. The Dalai Lama condemned the violence and said that Buddha would have helped the Rohingya, but many Buddhist nationalists have become part of a very Islamophobic campaign to get rid of them. Again, I sort of feel like they're letting Buddhism down with that stance. I mean, I always wondered if the vow of silence that Buddhists take was just to stop some of them from saying horrible racist views, and seems like I've been proved right. So, a horrible, horrible scene at the moment, and as a result, Bangladesh has been inundated with refugees seeking shelter. Many of them are without food or water as well. The UN has called on the Myanmar government to end its military operation, so hopefully some sort of intervention will happen soon. Next up is New Zealand, where they are having a very closely run election that could remove power from the Conservatives for the first time in nine years. Jacinda Ardern, the leader of the New Zealand Labour Party and who is likely to be the country's next Prime Minister, has said that she would seek to have a debate about whether or not Queen Lizzie II should still be its head of state. This is partly because Jacinda is a Republican and she wants to, as she said, carve out New Zealand's own future. But I'm sure it's also partly because there's every chance that if Arden becomes Prime Minister, she may have to deal with bloody Prince Charles in a year or two. And also because, hey, sometimes it's just nice to have another face on your money, isn't it? It is bizarre that a British monarch has been head of state in New Zealand since 1841, despite it being just under 12,000 miles away. If that isn't neglectful monarching, I don't know what is. Last year, a poll showed that 60% of Kiwis want to become a republic, but it is causing some issue with the royalists, and Jacinda Ardern was very careful to say in her statement that it's not something people are crying out for right now, but it is something they should think about for the future. Considering that she hasn't visited since 1995, and the likelihood Queen Lizzie will be visiting anytime soon is quite slim to none, how about just becoming a republic, but then just telling the Queen she's head anyway, and then occasionally taking a pic of an old flag and sending it on a postcard? See? I should totally be in charge.
Are you concerned that you don't know how to back Brexit properly? Or worse, you don't really feel like it, like the liberal snowflake you are? Well, don't fear, as this is a public service announcement from the Department for Exiting the European Union, or D-E-X-E-U for short, like a terrible sub. I did want to call it D-F-E-T-E-U, Defeat-E-U, but they said it had defeat in it, which might be too realistic and negative and make us all traitors to the Empire. But you don't have to worry about that, as here is the next step to enable you, the British citizen, to fully back Brexit. Step 2. Only eat British fruit and vegetables that we can obtain here all year round to stop us being dependent on any of that funny European produce. That means that we, as Brits, can enjoy carrots, potatoes and occasionally apples from January through to December and revel in a variety of British meals of carrots and potatoes, potatoes and carrots, apples and carrots, apple and potato and potato, apples and carrots. Don't you bloody dare make French fries with them. None of that nonsense. What do you mean, who will pick the potatoes, carrots and apples? Bloody blasted traitor. So, don't you be a Ramona, get on board the Brexit bus as it hangs off a cliff like the end of the Italian job and back Britain off that cliff. And now, back to Lisa. It's, yeah, it's sort of, I, I suppose like all uh, political situations around the world, people interpret it as is useful for them. Um, and what would... Uh, I mean, and, and now I suppose that the question would be is because both sides want something very different, what is the way in which this, you know, what is the way forward from this? I, I, I've seen that there's been mentions of a constituent assembly, and what exactly is that, and what would that mean yeah. for the country? So, in the midst of these recent protests, um, when, you know, the opposition, so the opposition is, is let's say, a kind of uh, a very heterogeneous group of different political leaders whose main um, core agreement is that they want out of Chavismo and, and Maduro. No? So this is really the only thing that holds these political groups together. And they're kind of, you know, they range on the political spectrum from the sort of centre through to much further um, to the right. Um, and so they were you know, managed to get a degree of sort of coherent articulation, which isn't necessarily something that they traditionally had over the preceding years, you know, amid these protests and people were really sort of mobilizing behind this. And so what Maduro decided to do, and this is really kind of um, a very astute move, was to take hold of this narrative and say, we are the people who are going to return peace to this country, we are going to open a dialogue. And he mandated the creation of a constituent assembly. What's a constituent assembly? It's basically a group of um, members who come together to rewrite the country's constitution. Now, this has been done previously. Chavez came to power in 98, was elected to power, entered government in 99, and also um, immediately uh, or very soon created a, a platform to have a public consultation to see if there was a desire to rewrite the constitution. So he opened up a referendum process and um, uh, Venezuelans effectively voted to have a new constitution. This was new. This was written up and this was um, then subjected to popular vote again and then was lauded, you know, across the world, in fact, as one of the most progressive constitutions that had been written. It was heralded as, you know, the... as it couldn't be bettered, right? So Maduro, what does he do? He he doesn't ask for a public consultation. He decrees that a new constituent assembly will come together to rewrite this constitution that, you know, his principal forebear had 
law that is, you know, um, impossible to better. So this already is kind of a, a measure of the sort of uh, power grab um, that this constituent assembly basically means. So the opposition decided not to field candidates that would stand, that would be members of this constituent assembly, so effectively withdrawing themselves from this political arena and not recognising um, that it had uh, any um, sort of legal basis. And so the members of the pro-Malurong constituencies, so the, the traditionally pro-Chavez, uh, fielded um, candidates for this, a vote took place. Uh, the numbers in this vote and the voting system were absolutely criticised um, worldwide by different you know, European nations, by different groups who claimed that it didn't have political legitimacy or, or legal standing. Effectively, 545 members of pro-Chavez, pro-Maduro um, deputies were elected and now sit as a constituent assembly. Right. So the idea of this was to provide peace for the nation, but effectively it's been a tool to sideline the democratically elected and opposition majority-held National Assembly, who are the people elected by the Venezuelan public to write the rules, and has handed Maduro effectively a blank sheet for this constituent assembly to to sit for the next two years and rewrite the country's um, law. So this has, um, if anything, sort of brought ever... So it's allowed the government to sort of own the narrative of peace, but at the same time it's immediately brought measures that are seeking to sideline further the opposition and to... Um, to remove some of their key detractors. And just one of the, the most probably most important and high-profile example of this was the immediate removal from office of the Attorney General. The Attorney General, Luisa Ortega Diaz, has historically been a really staunch supporter of, of the Chavez and Maduro governments. She was in power in 2014 when Venezuela lived its other most recent bout of extremely violent protests and um, she has always been on the side of the government until she split recently and started to become critical uh, and started to call the Constituent Assembly a, a rupture in the constitutional thread of the country. Day one of Constituent Assembly, she's removed from office. She's barred from entering her, business, her, 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 her offices and subsequently fled the country and then is now um, touring different Venezuelan um, the states in the, in the region of Latin America and Central America and, and denouncing um, what she calls widespread corruption within the Venezuelan state and, uh, and amid this sort of power grab. Wow. It, I mean, it sounds really terrifying. I mean, it, it's, I mean, for a start, I think that kind of uh, assuming that you can make a supposedly best constitution ever better is one of the most arrogant things I've ever heard. But it, but it's, it sounds really terrifying. And I, I wonder if, as you mentioned earlier, that it was, it was mentioned in the UN earlier this week, do you think it's going to require other countries intervening at some point? Um, I know there was a, a mention in July that the CIA might intervene, but I assume that would just kind of push Mahuro's uh, uh, agenda um, if that were to happen. Um, what's is this going to reach a point where other countries have to have to jump in? Mm. Well, to an extent, that's already happening. So there are kind of various fronts on which international participation in this crisis is, is playing out. So on one hand, we have 
back-channel negotiations. So we have a long-standing dialogue which is being mediated by different ex-presidents so of Spain, of the Dominican Republic, who are trying to bring the opposition um, table of democratic unity, the mood, as it's called, to the table with the government to see how they can find a sort of way out of this political impasse. Um, and this has broken down in various moments. The Vatican has also been uh, involved in this. Um, and one of, the, I think, the, the frustrations of the people who have been protesting is that they don't have any participation in these back-channel discussions, and they feel like their opposition, the members of the opposition, are brokering deals with the government um, about which people who've been mobilizing in the streets are absolutely not in agreement with. So this is one of the ways that sort of international intervention has been playing out. Um, another is more regionally, so the trade bloc Mercosur uh, suspended Venezuela recently from, from its group, um, has been calling for a political transition, um, but doesn't actually have any kind of, uh, let's say, legal framework to um, to expel Venezuela from, from this trade bloc. And at the same time, one of the things and one of the legacies of Chavez has been to set up different trading groups within the region um, whereby Venezuelan oil has been used to prop up sort of social um, projects and infrastructure in other countries, um, Dominican Republic among them. Um, and and there are sort of staunch allies who still will still support the Maduro government, um, Bolivia, for example, as well, um, as members of this sort of pink tide uh, rebirth of socialism across the region will still, you know, rally behind Maduro. Um, so these, there's kind of little political appetite to intervene, intervene in really kind of uh, stronger ways, certainly within regional, within the regional neighbours. And the other thing to mention, of course, are the recent sanctions uh, imposed by the Trump government um, in the north. And, and like you mentioned, this is absolutely kind of fuel for the anti-imperialist narrative that Maduro. Uh, is using to to prove the point long established by Chavez, you know, since he stood up in the the UN in New York and said it smelled of sulphur because the the devil of, of George W. Bush was present. Um, so all of this kind of uh, you know U.S. sanctions are uh, a way to absolutely say to the government of Maduro that the, at least the U.S. Uh, political apparatus does not recognize uh, legitimacy and condemns, you know, authoritarian rule. But at the same time, when we're talking about economic sanctions, the people that these are going to hurt the most are, are the Venezuelan um, people if, if these sanctions become more widespread. At the moment, we've seen the kind of more strategic and, and uh, targeting of people who allied, also members of the Maduro government, the vice president, for example, uh, trying to freeze assets, stop um, U.S. companies having dealings with companies that are linked to these people. But if those sanctions were you know, to become more widespread and, and affect the kind of uh, economic landscape of Venezuela, then, and the only people who are really going to suffer from this are Venezuelans themselves. So we absolutely have to question, um, you know, the, the the effectiveness of such sanctions. And within Venezuela and Latin America more broadly, absolutely a kind of U.S. intervention is something that is historically, um, for historical reasons, not desirable in any way. Um, so when you have the diaspora uh, in, in Florida, on the right wing, getting together with uh, Mike Pence and, and you know, lobbying Mar uh, Rubio to 
to bring sort of U.S. intervention. I think this is something that would be very problematic for the kind of the, the political structures within Venezuela that need to remain sovereign from U.S. Um, meddling. Sure, and I, yeah, and I can imagine that if you know you were ever to trust any U.S. government with a with a delicate intervention, this one would not be the government to trust. <laughs> um, so, one last question. Thank you. No, I, I found that hugely useful, and hopefully, listeners uh, will find it too um, very very clear. Um, apart from yourself, just the last question: um, Is there anyone else you would recommend that the podcast listeners um, uh, follow online or read up on if they would like sort of clear and informative updates on Venezuela uh, and or Latin American politics in general? Any any favourites? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've got uh, so two uh, solid um, uh, academic and sort of public sphere organizations. You've got the North American Congress on Latin American NACLA. This is a, a non-profit left-wing organization that um, it provides detailed and sustained um, commentary on what is happening in Venezuela. Uh, and the other is the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA. Um, this is uh, also a really reliable source of information um, that draws in uh, sort of different strands, so economic analysis, political analysis, and also gives a sort of commentary on how the media is dealing with Venezuela as well, so this is also quite helpful. Um, these would be my two points of, of uh, yeah, of, of key sources. And also, I think it's just very important for anybody who's studying Venezuela to really think about what the editorial um, profile is of the media that they're reading, and to try to read widely to understand the different interests. Uh, and stakeholders who who want to shape the narrative about Venezuela. And I think it's healthy, certainly, to read um, from different political viewpoints um, to, to try to see what's at stake. Um, Jacobin uh, magazine has also been and following it uh, recently. Um, and uh, Greg Grandin, who's a, an American historian, did a really good piece in the London Review of Books uh, in June this year, which gives a sort of nice historical overview if people want to um, really get up to speed with, you know, the backstory uh, of what happened in Venezuela throughout Walter Chavez's rule and some of the more structural kind of economic issues um, at play there with, with, with oil, basically. So yeah, those would be the, the key points, I think. One good thing about Venezuela is they do have a really dark sense of humor. So even amid all of these this crisis, and maybe this is just something to add, um, you know, people find ways of, of being together and, and there's kind of solidarity in crisis, and, and that's an important thing. Um, I, I think, sorry, there's one other thing that is important to mention, and that is that there are a number of um, NGOs or just collaborative groups, solidarity groups that are being set up um, in Europe. So there are so many Venezuelans who are now moving abroad um, and people of all different social classes. This is not just an elite brain drain. We're looking at, you know, people in quite precarious circumstances and now leaving the country. But one of the ways that people are confronting the scarcity of medicines is that uh, these international groups are um, sort of gathering together and setting up ways to uh, allow people to donate money that will fund um, sending basic medicines to Venezuela. So in the UK, there's one called Healing Venezuela. Um, this is uh, a good place to start to if you want to help out. Um, and, and, you know, we're looking at kind of blood pressure tablets, like really basic, basic things that um, are then being sent to 
um, to big clinics, public clinics in, in Venezuela. Thank you to Lisa for letting me interview her. Um, she is on Twitter at Lisa underscore Blackmore and her book Spectacular Modernity is available at all good, great and a handful of dubious bookshops. One of the books she's currently co-editing on Venezuela is available for pre-order too at uh, urpub.org and that's called Downward Spiral, El Helicoid's Descent from Mall to Prison and it focuses on a building that was hailed as a beacon of Latin American modernist architecture in the 1950s and looks at how it changed over time as well as the country around it. Um, there is also a documentary film that Lisa was involved in uh, called, and apologies for my yet another terrible pronunciation, there's been many this episode, I'm just sort of rolling with it. Um, so I think this is... Despair de Trujillo. Despair de Trujillo. Uh, who knows? Um, or after Trujillo, uh, which is about the Dominican Republic after the dictatorship of Trujillo, which I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Um, anyway, the film is in Spanish, uh, but it has English subtitles, and you can find that at, and this is quite a long URL, but it's um, phil.uzh.ch forward slash elearning forward slash bog forward slash um, despues hyphen de hyphen triujillo. Or what is up much easier than that is find their Facebook page at After True Hello and click on the link there. Um, also, to make things even easier, I'm going to post that link on the partly political Twitter and Facebook pages as well. Also, super importantly, um, Healing Venezuela, which she mentions at the end, can be found at healingvenezuela.co.uk. So do check them out as well and help out if you can. Next week, I should have previous guest David Powell from the New Economics Foundation on hurricanes, global warming and the inequality aspect of natural disasters. Fun jury stuff. Um, I've got a few other good guests lined up as well, which I'm very excited for you to hear. But as I always, always say, if you have any area you'd like me to interview someone about or someone specific you'd like me to talk to, then please do drop me a line at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or, you know, create 5,000 Russian bots to spam social media with adverts that have your suggestion on accompanied with a meme that doesn't really make sense is obviously factually incorrect and for some reason has nudity in it and then I might see it if I don't immediately report you. I mean, really, it's just far easier to email, isn't it? Brexit So after months and months of promising to take back control, MPs have voted for the EU withdrawal bill, which has taken back control from the EU and given it directly just to the Conservative government. Yes, after promising much sovereignty, we've actually made the biggest change from rule of law to executive power that's ever happened. And at the same time, quite ironically, MPs have also voted for the single biggest incorporation of EU law into UK law that has ever happened before. Oh, it's almost like everything they said during the campaign was completely and utterly redundant. What are the chances? And yet again, the past week's Brexit progress has just made me even more certain that if this isn't all a terrible prank show with the highest budget a prank show has ever had, and all of the UK and EU being the victims, then the only other possibility is that we are definitely the parody parallel universe that another universe somewhere is using as the basis for a dystopian comedy show. Because if neither of those things are true, then we'll have to live with the realisation that not a single person in charge has a fucking clue what they're doing, and that we are in the scariest timeline. 
Only a couple of days ago, Foreign Secretary and Lint Frankenstein, Boris Johnson, ignited hostilities with the EU again by saying that they have a legal duty to discuss future trade talks now, completely ignoring that the UK has a legal duty to sort out the Brexit bill payments before that happens, or that the European Parliament has the power to veto absolutely any agreement between the EU and the UK, meaning what you probably don't want to do is get your biggest idiot to rile them up constantly till they tell you to just fuck off. The leaked immigration restriction proposals were quite grim news for any EU nationals, with plans to give low-skilled workers only a two-year residency, but those in high-skilled occupations three to five-year ones, which is all sorts of batshit for several reasons. One is that there's still little and very inconclusive evidence that immigration affects employment or pay for native workers at all. A Bank of England report from last year suggested that an increase in the ratio of foreign board workers to UK board workers in lower paid jobs caused a small effect, predicting that a 1.88 reduction in pay for semi-skilled and unskilled service workers such as childminding, bar staff, call centre staff etc. would follow a 10% rise in immigration. But they also said that this was due to wage decreases for UK workers as a whole and that the lower pay foreign born workers were often taking also lowered the average wage somewhat. Overall, if you're in a lower paid job, at most a rise in immigration would cause you a loss of 1-2p to per hour, per year, which does of course add up, but not quite as much as people assume. If you're a comedian doing a podcast like me, then it really doesn't matter who comes to the UK, as you're still going to be broke either way. The other issue with the idea of giving longer residency allowances to high-skilled workers is that if you're an idiot who's already miffed at the idea of foreigners taking all the jobs, why are you stopping them from doing the ones no one here wants to do and yet encouraging them to come and take all the better-paid ones people do want? Honestly, these politicians have less real convictions than Judge Judy. Other proposals will require all EU nationals to show a passport on entry to the UK, meaning airports will be even more shitty than they are now. It proposes ending free movement from day one of leaving the EU, ending the rights for most EU citizens to settle in Britain, and new restrictions on their rights to bring in family members. Essentially, we couldn't be any less welcoming as a country unless we wrote Go Fuck Yourself on the White Cliffs of Dover and handed out the Daily Mail in all of our airports. Sorry? What? We do that one already? Oh, God. Former Prime Minister and perfect target for shoe-throwing Tony Blair has waded into the issue like Kanye West at an awards show, saying that we should just tighten existing free movement rules requiring EU citizens to only get an entrance if they have a job offer, which goes against EU law entirely and so wouldn't be allowed. I'd almost be up for EU citizens only being allowed in the UK if they could respond to a picture of Tony Blair by telling it to fuck off. Apart from the EU withdrawal bill getting voted through though, none of this is looking that great for the government at all. And even then, the EU withdrawal bill still has to go through committee stage and the Lords, so there's every chance the power grab could still end up for the government like a fairground crane that only ever promises a glimpse of reward, but ultimately just wastes your time and a lot of money. Greece's former finance minister and the funds, if he'd been very, very ill, Yanis Varoufakis, has warned that Theresa May is sleepwalking into a disaster. If that is true, at least she'll be able to use the excuse that she was asleep this whole time, rather than wide awake and still woefully incompetent. Global Financial Service Morgan Stanley have also warned that Theresa May's government is going to collapse by next year as a result of all this. And all of this could be why it looks like Theresa May is going to address the EU with a speech about a no-cliff-edge transition deal, with any interim agreements being as close as possible to current relations. She's basically asking if we can have another few weeks grace please, as it turns out no one knew what the fuck they were doing when they triggered Article 50 in the first place. But it also looks like May plans to tell the Conservative conference about a more hardline stance resulting in a very clean Brexit. The problem with that is, if I can read that on the internet, so can the EU. 
Hey, maybe that's it. Maybe Theresa May just hasn't realised that they also have computers across the channel. It would explain an awful lot, but still not quite as much as if she was actually sleepwalking. Are you worried that you really like the pound having value somewhere other than your average supermarket trolley? Are you concerned that you're putting the will of the people behind your worries about an economic crisis or a lack of nurses? Well, you needn't project fear, as we here at DEXEU say BEXEU. With us, as we provide many tips to keep stoking the delusions in your imagination, like someone's pulled British wool over your eyes and you can't remove it no matter how bloody scratchy it feels. Step 3. Do not leave the British Isles for holiday or work. Support your country with a staycation. There is nothing more British than holding your loved one and children tightly as you sit in a swaying caravan while the rain hits the roof, praying that this very British weather will let up long enough for you to buy some potatoes and carrots to eat. It is vital that you do not leave the country, firstly because how can borders remain truly closed unless we seal ourselves in, and secondly because it will be much harder for 2019 anyway, so you may as well get used to it now. Get behind Brexit Britain, as we're all in shit together. And that is all for this week's show. Thank you again for listening and please do leave the show a review or at least recommend it to someone else you know or even don't know. But if you do that, don't do it in a creepy way like with cut-out lettering stuck to roadkill as I don't think it'll persuade them to tune in. Also, please join the Patreon if you can. If you'd like a download of my Ed Fringe show, you can get that at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro by donating a little bit to me monthly or give me a one-off donation at ko-fi ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro. All of it really, really helps towards the making of this show. Show. Um, don't forget you can contact me at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com and drop me a line about, well, pretty much anything. I mean, podcast stuff is preferable, but I'm also always happy to discuss very favourite types of cheese or the benefits of adding punctuation to your baby's names. So, you know, for example, if you call them Steve with a question mark, then their name becomes Steve. See, brilliant. Um, big thanks again to Acast for hosting the show and to my brother, The Last Skeptic, for all the musics. And uh, his album, uh, This Is Where It Gets Good, will be out in a few weeks, but you can pre-order it from music places now. Like iTunes, I mean. Uh, not music places like my mouth when I sing in the shower. Don't get it from there. Sounds terrible. Um, I'm going to be back next week when I'll be asking questions like, why did I stay up all night to watch the EU withdrawal bill debate and then record some of this afterwards? And other questions like, how can Theresa May's government really do a power grab when she didn't get the stronger hand she needed at the snap election and you'll be asking can you pronounce maduro right yet maduro 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 no no goodbye this week's show was brought to you by the number eight for both king henry the eighth and also the amount of weed his name now represents that is also nowhere near enough to relax or calm you down after you've heard all the shitty news about brexit <sighs> Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.